And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal, the full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And welcome to today's edition of The Real Investment Show. It's, of course, Tuesday, technically speaking Tuesday, of course. So we'll talk about, is a bear market coming? That's really the big question that everybody wants to know. Uh, we'll get in that into that this morning. It's also an article on our website as well. Um, you know, lots of commentary as of late, uh, really talking about, you know, recessions coming because we have an inverted yield curve and we have inflation, all these type of things. And it's certainly, you know, a concern right now. In fact, that's the majority of the questions that I keep getting by email and, and by, you know, questions and comments that we get. And, you know, being the yield curve inverted, now it's uninverted. So does that mean the recession's now over? No, it doesn't mean anything. And there's a couple of reasons why, and we've talked about this before, is that when you're talking about yield curve inversions, right? That's just telling you that there's something weak in the economy. There's something happening, uh, economically speaking, that sets the economy up. And you know, we, we kind of equated it to this idea if you walked up to the edge of a cliff and look over it, right? It's completely okay, right? You're just looking down the cliff and it's fine. It only becomes a problem if somebody walks up behind you and shoves you. <laughs> Right. So this is the problem with the economy is that, yes, what the yield curves are telling us, whether they're inverted or not right now, is just telling you that the economy is just standing there at the edge of a cliff, kind of looking over. And it's going to take some exogenous event to, to actually push it into a recession. Now, what could that be? I have no idea. Nobody does. Um, you know, a good example of this was back in early 2008. Bear Stearns went into bankruptcy over their, you know, high yield funds that were just full of these subprime mortgages, right? And this is where Bear Stearns sold for $2 a share, finally, and, and um, you know, completely devastated a lot of their funds, investors along the way as well. And then the market rallied back, right, to all-time highs following that. It's like, and, and of course, Ben Bernanke at the time came out and said, see, subprime's contained, it's a Goldilocks economy, nothing to worry about whatsoever. It's all fine. Don't worry about it. But yield curves were inverted. They were telling us there was a problem with the economy. It just hasn't, they didn't get there just yet, right? Bear Stearns wasn't, you know, the issue du jour at the moment, right? It was a lot of concern, no doubt about it. And, you know, it was quickly taken over and, and, and life went on until September. And then in September... Hank Paulson and other bankers all gathered around the, the, the board of the Treasury and decided in their infinite wisdom that it'd be okay to shove Lehman Brothers into bankruptcy. Of course, as soon as they did that, that created counterparty risk. Nobody knew who the next domino was that would fall, so nobody wanted to trade with anybody. And everything stopped in the credit markets. And that was the shove that pushed the economy over the cliff. Of course, we didn't really know all this until after the fact, unfortunately. And that's always the problem with trying to predict things is that we never know exactly when they're going to occur. But what we can do as investors is simply just prepare ourselves for potentially what could happen. Now, here's, you know, the, the, there's the old saying about failing to plan is planning to fail, right? And that's really kind of the big story here. 
is that often in the financial markets, we don't plan for anything. We just, you know, just, you know, kind of keep writing out our investments and just hoping everything's going to be okay because, well, CNBC told me today that, you know, everything's going to be fine. There's no risk of a recession on the horizon. And maybe that's the case, but what happens ultimately is that we fail to plan and then when something happens, it turns out to be the worst possible outcome because we didn't plan in the first place. You know, it's kind of like leaving your house and, and the weatherman says, there's a 20% chance of rain. Now, meteorologists are the best predictors in the world, right? We've talked about this whole study before, but they're wrong a lot, right? Predicting anything is very difficult. In fact, there was a recent study out that out of all the predictions, if they say that it's going to, there's a 20% chance of rain, the actual occurrence of rain typically falls within about 5%. And also remember that when they say there's a 20% chance of rain, they mean it's a 20% chance of rain in a given area, right? It might rain, in, for instance, here in Houston, it might rain in Montgomery County, but not actually in Houston proper, right? So it's about the area. And this is the same way that it is in the markets when we're predicting things. And so the weatherman says, hey, you know what? There's a 20% chance of rain today. And you go, ah, pff, I'm not going to worry about it. And you leave the house without an umbrella. And of course, that's the one time you get caught in the middle of a sudden downpour. So you take the umbrella with you. If you don't use it, that's okay, right? You still had the umbrella. It didn't rain. It's fine. And you go on about your day. But if it does happen to rain, you have the umbrella. And that's kind of the same way that it comes with the investing market as well. We're all talking about a recession and the fact that everybody's talking about a recession means that probably we're not due to have one just yet, right? When everybody's expecting something to happen, it's like the uh, watching a, a, a pot of, of water to boil, right? It just won't happen until you stop watching it. And the fact that everybody's kind of watching for this recession, everything's kind of adjusting in the financial markets for this potential recessionary outcome next week, and that's not going to happen. What will happen is that the markets need to stop watching for recession, and they will. Over the course of the next month or so, things will be fine. And we'll start to see some deflation coming in through CPI. We'll start to see that number come back a bit. And everybody will say, see, we got through the worst of it. It was a soft landing engineered by the Federal Reserve. Isn't it great? Isn't it wonderful? We'll stop watching for the recession. We'll stop watching for the downturn. And when we do that, that's when it occurs because that's the way it always happens in the markets, right? It's when we stop watching for it, when we regain our confidence, that's when things tend to occur. So again, as we move forward into this year, it'll be very important just to, to carry an umbrella, right? Doesn't mean you're actually gonna need it. Doesn't mean you need to be overly bearish about the markets. I'm getting a lot of emails from people saying, well, I'm, I'm all in cash. I'm just gonna wait for the big crash to come and I'll get back in then. No, you won't. And the reason is, is that just like you're out of the markets now because you're worried about the crash, when the crash actually occurs and you're confirmed right on your view that the market has now crashed, you won't know when to get back in because you'll be then convinced that the market's going to zero. And it won't. And so when the market finally does complete a correction and then turn back up, your next argument will be, well, I'm not going to get in now because this is just a bounce and we're going to go lower. And then the market keeps running up. And then you're going to tell yourself, well, I can't buy in now because, well, now it's overvalued again. So this is always the psychological trap that we get ourselves into. So here's the whole point of the conversation this morning is that as we talk about where markets are, is just to focus on where we are currently in the economy, in the markets, in 
in, in politics, everything, right? It all has an impact on it. So as we kind of look at this and think about going forward, where are we going to be in a year from now, two years from now? Who knows, right? Nobody really can predict that far ahead of anything. What we can control is what's happening right now. As we talked about last week, markets are continuing to kind of hold support right here. Markets are getting back or they're very oversold. We're working off that previous overbought buy signal. That's moving back into a position now to where fairly soon we can probably trigger a buy signal and potentially moving into May or June could see a decent rally in markets. And that's going to take everybody by surprise. They'll be like, what? Markets are rallying? No way this can't happen. But that's exactly kind of how the setup is occurring right now. Doesn't mean it will happen, but we're certainly starting to get some setup here that suggests we could get a nice counter trend rally over the course of the next couple of three, four weeks. And that's particularly the case given that individual sentiment of investors, retail investors, is now at 30 years low, at 30 year lows. The AAII, American Association of Individual Investors, their sentiment on stocks, 30 year lows. That typically happens near market bottoms, not peaks. We'll be right back after the break. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. We're all impacted by the significance of the passage of time, especially when it comes to signing up for Medicare. When should you enroll? What's the best plan for you? How will the significant passage of time adversely affect your Medicare premiums? Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for our next virtual lunch and learn on Medicare, avoiding pitfalls and permanent penalties. Thursday, April 21st. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com for our our next free lunch and learn to avoid the pitfalls and permanent penalties of Medicare. Realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. So a couple of things, we've got an article out this morning talking about, you know, is a bear market lurking? And that's really kind of the big question here, which is that, you know, as you, you know, a lot of the emails that I'm getting, a lot of questions, concerns, it's like, oh my gosh, a bear market's coming. And maybe, you know, the problem with trying to predict a bear market is that bear markets are fast, they're swift, they're brutal, and then they're over. And bear mar bull markets last a lot longer than bear markets. And the, and the problem with trying to predict a bear market is getting the timing right. And that is always the issue. You know, there's been plenty of reasons why over the last, you know, a few years in particular that we had a good setup for a bear market. 2018 is a good example. Fed was hiking rates, and we had gotten to the point that they were tapering their balance sheet, and the market started correct. We were down by 20%. And should have gone into a bear market at that point, except the Fed reversed course very quickly, started, you know, kind of jawboning markets higher. Hey, you know, we're, you know, we're going to stop hiking rates. We're going to stop tapering our balance sheet. And 
Then uh, in 2019, they start cutting rates back to zero. They start QE4 back up in September of 2019 to bail out hedge funds. And then, of course, 2020 comes and we're down 35%. Every setup there, perfect for a much bigger bear market. Should have corrected, you know, probably somewhere between 40 and 50%, if not a little bit more. But we didn't because we immediately met that bear market with a tremendous amount of fiscal liquidity. So the problem with trying to predict bear markets and to position for them is that because of all these external events that occur, and primarily I'm talking about the Fed, is that that has frustrated investors to a large degree. And this is why it's important that we just have to navigate the market for what it is. And that's, and it's really kind of the, you know, the context of the article today called Is a Bear Market Lurking? Because, you know, there, there's a lot of risk to predicting anything. And I, and I, I laid out some kind of disclaimers in, in the article. I said, you know, I said longer term timing is always a challenge. And that's right, because... You know, trying to, to, you know, pick the exact moment when something occurs is very difficult. And, and so you've got to be committed to the process. If you're committed to a bear market happening, that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. And there's, there's a reasonable possibility that you could be right over the course of the next 12, 18, 24 months. But it could take a lot longer than you think. And in the meantime, markets tend to do just the opposite of what you expect them to do. And this is what's potentially going to frustrate a lot of investors. There's a setup here, as I was saying in the last segment, that you know we could see a rally in the markets, fairly substantial one, because we have such negative sentiment and positioning in the markets or you know investors are so off sides right now that any type of news that triggers a buying rally is going to create a pretty significant short squeeze which will push stocks higher and then what that will look what that will bring about is a change in the commentary in the mainstream media is like okay whew, got past it it's over things are fine and then you're gonna go okay well you know you know, now I'm losing money on my bear market bet, so I'm going to jump back into the bull market, and you're going to jump right back into that bull market right at the moment that turns. And that's what happens throughout history. And if you go back to 2007, 2008, it's a great example of that. Again, I was talking about, you know, Bear Stearns earlier. When Bear Stearns fell apart and was bought out, that was kind of that key indicator. At that moment, I mean, you just had a financial fallout of Bear Stearns, huge investment banking company. Went to too large a share, it was bought out. <clears throat> and at that moment, markets were declining. And that was like a great setup right there for us to go into a bigger bear market. But the net, the commentary quickly changed. It's a Goldilocks economy, subprimes contained, don't worry about it. And the markets rallied right back to an all-time high. And at that moment, you're going, okay, we'll see. Woo. It's over. The worst of the worst is over. And that was the peak. And then the market started to decline. And then Lehman filed for bankruptcy. 
and 40% later, we're talking about potential bottoms of, of markets. And it happened just that quick. Really, the bear market in 2008 occurred between about July and February of 2009. It was very quick and very brutal. And that's the way bear markets typically are. So the problem is always trying to get that timing right. If you're too early, you're likely going to get suckered back into the markets just at the moment that it falls apart. If you're too late, then you're not going to do anything because you're going to hope for a rally to, to, to maybe get yourself out of it, but there's not going to be a rally to get yourself out of. And so you wind up kind of riding it all the way down to the bottom. And this is, and this is the important facet to think about when you're, when you're talking about markets and talking about timing in particular is there's a lot of negative commentary right now. In fact, there's probably too much of it, and that's the problem. Sentiment is very, very negative. And that typically doesn't support... A bear market when you have very negative sentiment that's typically bullish because so many everybody's so negative i know this doesn't make sense but it's contrarian when everybody's on one side of the boat all it takes is one person to go back in the other direction and the boat starts to tip in the other direction and that's what will happen it doesn't mean that's a long-term event it doesn't mean that because we have extremely negative sentiment right now that we're going to see a massive bull market, uh, bull market, right? And we're going to go up 50% from here. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is you could see enough of a counter market rally that could last several months. And it'll have to. But have this kind of counter market rally that sucks all of this negative sentiment back out of the markets. And that's typically what happens. We typically go through these phases where everybody gets very negative. Then they go in the other direction. It's like, whew, thank goodness it's all over. And then that's when things kind of fall apart. So these are the things you want to be kind of, of watching for. Again, the, the sentiment is so very negative. Again, when you take a look at the American Association of Individual Investors, I said before, that's at 30-year lows. It's, it's dramatically negative. That typically, that type of negative sentiment typically aligns with a bottom in the markets. And so we may be talking about very well that the March low when Russia invaded Ukraine, that might be the low for a while. Now, how long of a while? I don't know. One month, two months, three months, six months, nine months, a year. Who knows? Probably won't see a recession until late this year, next year. But we won't know for sure until about nine months after that when the National Bureau of Economic Research comes back and dates that. One of the things that will either accelerate or decelerate the next recession will be how fast the Federal Reserve actually begins hiking rates. And look, right now they're not hiking rates. Their balance sheet is still expanding. They haven't started tapering their balance sheet yet. So that support for the financial markets is still there, which is another reason why markets haven't just falling apart at this point the fed's still buying bonds interest rates are at a quarter of a percent effectively still zero they haven't started aggressively hiking rates yet but that's coming it's just a functional win 
And depending on how fast they hike those rates, depending on how fast they tighten that balance sheet, will make the determination on potentially where we can start estimating the start date of the recession and the downturn of the markets. But that's going to be a while. Again, banking on it today could leave you frustrated here for a while. And again, uh, again, markets haven't done anything wrong. Yeah, there's been a lot of churning around in the markets. There's been market rotation kind of all over the place. We go from technology one day to energy the next day, back to healthcare the next day, back to you know basic materials the next day, and then it's, it does it all over again. Very, very rapid rotations, which makes it very difficult to kind of trend invest because there's not a lot of a trend going on in much in many places from one day to the next. So this is going to be the issue that we're going to have to deal with for the next couple of months. And so this and so this is just kind of the important thing. That's really kind of the discussion that we have in today's technically speaking post talking about this idea of you know, bear market, is it coming? And, you know, we kind of lay out the case. You know, there's certainly technical warnings that are increasing. There's certainly fundamental warnings that are increasing. And all of these suggest that there's risk. The question, of course, is exactly at what point does that risk matter? And unfortunately, I wish I could give you an exact date and time, September 12th, 4 a.m., it's going to matter. I just don't know. And nobody does. And that's why we have to manage our portfolios for where we are right now, not where we hope to be, because we don't know when that hope will actually turn into reality. Be right back after the break. The Real Investment Advice blog. It's required reading for the informed investor. Catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com. We're all impacted by the significance of the passage of time, especially when it comes to signing up for Medicare. When should you enroll? What's the best plan for you? How will the significant passage of time adversely affect your Medicare premiums? Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for our next virtual lunch and learn on Medicare, avoiding pitfalls and permanent penalties. Thursday, April 21st. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com for our next free lunch and learn to avoid the pitfalls and permanent penalties of Medicare. Realinvestmentadvice.com. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. Brent put an interesting article on my uh, note page this morning talking about how people are now turning, rather than going to a doctor when they feel like there's something wrong with them, you know, they go to Google and kind of search out the symptoms. And, and this is, I can attest that this is a true fact. Our, you know, our, our oldest daughter, every time she starts feeling bad, right, she starts going to Google and finding out what's wrong with herself. And, you know, she comes downstairs, she goes, Mom, I've got dysentery. 
I was like, what do you mean you have dysentery? Well, I, ha I have a fever. I'm nauseated. I've got cramps. It's like, no, that's you're, you're <laughs> it's not dysentery. Well, that's what Google says, right? <laughs> so you know, this is the problem, right? You know, it's, it's our worst fears when we go on to Google and start searching out our symptoms. I'm pretty sure I've got cancer, right? And uh, but it's it's true. I mean, it's, and this is the this is the problem, of course. You know, with sometimes access to too much information is not really a great thing either, uh, particularly when you don't know how to apply the the information accordingly. But uh, I just thought it was funny because it's talking about you know for many people nowadays the first part of port of call is going to Google to search out symptoms. Percentage of 16 to 74 year olds that looked for health related information online. In between 2011 and 2021, 80% of people do it online in Finland. Denmark is 75%. Spain is 69%. Um, France is at 56%. Bulgaria, 36%. They're the only people that really still go to a doctor. <laughs> so <laughs> maybe maybe they're onto something. I'm not quite sure. But yeah, it's going to be interesting to see, you know, with more of these companies like, you know, Teladoc and, and all these other kind of online doctor services now, you know, go see your doctor online you can go see a psychologist online is, you know, certainly making things a lot easier. But I'm starting to wonder if you don't start to lose a little bit of that human interaction, human touch of, you know, actually having a doctor, you know, check your heart. You know, it's, you do it yourself type thing. So we'll see how this all works out. But I just think it's interesting because, because again, you know, my, da my daughter's such a good example of this. I'm pretty sure that she, at some point over the last, you know, six months, she's had malaria and a whole variety of other, you know, human body rots. It's just, you know, whatever, what, whatever the symptoms kind of match up online, that's, that's pretty much what she's had uh, over time. Anyway. We'll see. We'll see how this all works out. Um, so, yeah, just for the break, talking a little bit about, you know, planning for a bear market and, and you know, all these type of things. You know, it, it's, you know, I, I just want to restate to you, I'm not telling you that we can't have a bear market. What I am getting is I'm getting a tremendous number of emails of from individuals that are just completely petrified of the financial markets. And there's really kind of two takeaways from this. One is that there's nothing that says you have to invest, by the way. You know, I, I, you know, I get it. You know, we all have gotten lured into this uh, kind of gambling casino mentality that we have to be invested because we have to make our money grow. And, you know, it's it, and we like the idea of, of making gains in markets, but that comes with risk. And if you're going to invest, you have to accept the risk that you're going to lose money. That's just the way the game works. You can't have one without the other. But the second thing is, is that you're not required to invest anything. There's nothing wrong with just saving cash. You know, at the end of the day, having cash is better than losing money. Uh, but I'm losing money to inflation. Yeah, maybe. But again, if you can't afford to lose money or you don't want to lose money, then don't invest. I mean, that's really what this comes down to. 
But see, we've all gotten lured into this idea that the stock market's a no-lose game until you lose money. And that's been, you know, one of the problems really fostered by the Federal Reserve. You know, here's another meme that's running around lately. The dollar's going to zero. No, it's not. I get it, right? We have a lot of debt. And everybody's upset about the way the country's headed. I get it. Fiat currencies are all going to zero ultimately because there's nothing to back them up. I get it. Right? They're all valid arguments. But that's just not the way the world works anymore. Nobody is on a gold standard. Not even cryptocurrency. Everything is fiat. Cryptocurrency is fiat. I mean, you, you may want to have this belief that cryptocurrency is going to be the replacement for fiat currency. It's not. It's still fiat. There's no guarantee standing behind cryptocurrency that it will be worth anything in the future. If people stop accepting at some point, I don't want your cryptocurrency, it has no value. That's the risk of fiat currencies. Right now, what backs the U.S. dollar is the full faith and guarantee of payment by the U.S. government. However, at some point, if everybody in the world says, I don't want dollars anymore, then it's going to zero. There will be no value of the U.S. currency. How does that happen? Well, you lose a war, like Weimar Germany. Nobody wants the currency of a conquered nation because, well, you don't know what's happening next. You know, there was a good example of that was the Iraqi dinar after the fall of Iraq. People were buying Iraqi dinars at, you know, cents on the dollar because that currency had collapsed because after the fall of Iraq, nobody knew what the outcome of the government or the uh, was going to be, right? Who was going to be running it? Who's going to control it, et cetera. And everybody was buying these Iraqi dinar at, at you know, cents on the dollar, expecting them that as soon as the, the, the you know, government got put into back, back into place, that the value of that dinar would surge back to value. Well, it never happened. It's still a disaster over there, you know, 20 years later. But that's a good example of how a currency goes to zero. Nobody wanted the currency because nobody knew what the outcome of the government was going to be. Nobody knew what the sustainability of the government or the currency was going to be. So in order for the U.S. currency to go to zero, we have to lose a war. Or we have to lose the full faith in our government to pay our debts. And that's not going to happen anytime soon. And so I'm getting a lot of emails from people going, well, you know, I don't want to be U.S. dollar dominated base because going to zero and, you know, all these things and, you know, so forth and so on. And the dollar's getting stronger, my friends, not weaker. Why? Why is the dollar going up? If, th if these arguments are true that the U.S. dollar is going to zero, then why is the dollar getting stronger, not weaker? We talked about this in 2021. We said that the dollar would be stronger going forward 
rather than weaker. And we got lots of pushback times. No, dollar's going to zero. And it's been getting stronger ever since. Why? Because there's nowhere else in the world to put currency where you have the stability of government, the rule of law, the depth of liquidity, and a high look and it, and that two and a half, two point eight percent on ten-year treasury rates. There's a return on investment now. So the dollar is getting stronger, not weaker. And of course, if one dollar is getting stronger, somebody else has got to be getting weaker. That's just the way the currency market works. For every every currency that goes up, another currency has to go down. So right now. Money's coming out of the Japanese yen. It's going into U.S. dollars. So you're getting an inversion between the dollar and the yen. Now, surprising. Higher rates. Japanese JGBs yield zero. We have two and a half, two point eight percent 2.8%. Where are you going to put your money? And so, this, you know, and, and this goes back to the issue of this idea of, you know, you know what? I'm just, you know. I've been reading all these people on the internet and I listened to all these, you know, super bearish individuals and they've got me convinced the world's going to end. Maybe. But I'll tell you this, there's this kind of this interesting history of the United States is that there's been multiple moments throughout history that people thought that the world was going to end and it didn't. You know, when Japan attacked Pearl Harbor, that was pretty much one of those moments, right? I mean, can you imagine today if Russia attacked the U.S. coast? That would certainly probably elicit fears that the world was coming to an end. But it didn't. Rallied back. America rallied back. And we got stronger because of it, not weaker. And it's been kind of the one prevailing trait of the U.S. economy, regardless of leaders, regardless of legislatures. The American spirit has continued to advance, not decline. And betting on a decline of the U.S. spirit has always been a losing bet. I'm not saying that that doesn't mean you can't have a bear market, but betting on an absolute disastrous outcome has pretty much always been a losing bet. So just need to be careful about just how bearish you are on the American ideal. Be right back. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. We're all impacted by the significance of the passage of time, especially when it comes to signing up for Medicare. When should you enroll? What's the best plan for you? How will the significant passage of time adversely affect your Medicare premiums? Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for our next virtual lunch and learn on Medicare, avoiding pitfalls and permanent penalties. Thursday, April 21st. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com for our next free lunch and learn to avoid the pitfalls and permanent penalties of Medicare. Realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show.
And welcome back to the show. Using full stops in text and messages can offend or upset young people, linguists have warned. Teenagers and those in their early 20s, those called Generation Z, who have grown up using short messages to communicate can see the punctuation mark, known as a period, as a symbol of curt passive aggression. Linguist Dr. Lauren Fontenin tweeted, if you add that additional marker for completion, comma, I'm offended, there will they will read something into it and it tends to be a falling intonation or negative tone. And then she used a period. I'm very offended when she completed her sentence. You know, it's, you know, I, I don't disagree with her because, you know, we have just completely slaughtered the English language now at this point through the use of Twitter and text messaging and everything else. I mean, when, you know, I'm getting, you know, I get email uh, resumes from people all the time, right? People send me resumes and I get them from young people. And like in the middle of the resume, it'll have the letter U or you are, you know, that type of that type of thing or your meaning you are without the apostrophe just y-o-u-r rather than y-o-u apostrophe r-e you know so it's just you know now it's just all become common and accepted and we shouldn't worry about the value of grammar as we continue to get dumber <laughs> so <laughs> you just not surprising you just you have to wonder where this where this pendulum swings yeah and then eventually somebody goes, this is just stupid. Can we go back in the other direction? There's got to be that point at somebody. Somebody just shakes their head ultimately and says, this is just stupid. We're going to go back in the other direction now and start using punctuation because I can't tell where one sentence stops and the other one starts. That's the, the whole point. Let's eat grandma. <laughs> exactly. Let's eat grandma. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but it sure makes for fun. You know, yeah. text conversations. Yeah. There's it there. Yeah, there's it there. Anyway, a um, couple of other interesting ideas. Uh, this morning, uh, people are applauding all across the country as airlines have now are now informing passengers that mask mandates are no longer required on airplanes. And TSA is no longer enforcing the mask mandate after a ruling by a federal judge on Saturday has said that it's uh, that the CDC ex exceeded their authority in requiring masks for travel. So it's interesting they announced these on airplanes, and there's uh, all kinds of viral video right now of everybody clapping on the airplane, like, thank God, getting some sanity back. This whole mask thing is stupid. Yeah. See, again, slowly swinging in the other direction, getting rid of stupidity, getting back into logic. We're... We're getting back in that direction. So slowly but surely, we may fix grammar along the way as well. If we can just get a federal judge to rule on the value of grammar, we'll be in good shape. I just don't know if we're going to get there anytime soon, but hopefully. But again, look, it's just like the American spirit we're talking about the last, the, in the last section. Eventually, logic prevails. <laughs> eventually. It may take some time to get there, but eventually... People will start using actual logic instead of just, I don't know what you call it, just anyway. <laughs> well, not trying to use that term. We'll, we'll leave that one off air for now. 
Anyway, um, CDC has now also announced this morning that the CDC itself has now announced that the public transportation mask mandate no longer in effect after the ruling. Uh, another thing, uh, of course, is that everybody's watching very closely is this uh, acquisition or this bid by Elon Musk to take over Twitter. And the goal there is also to imply some logic about free speech. And it's interesting because Twitter immediately responded by setting up a poison pill. And I got a lot of questions over the weekend about exactly what does that mean and, and you know, how does that help Twitter? And it doesn't. So first of all, what a what a poison pill does. Oh, and there's a headline right now. Uh, Musk said that board members' salary needs to be zero if my bid succeeds. That'll say three million a year right there. So if you're sitting on the board, you're going to lose your salary. <laughs> Which is probably the right thing to do. I mean, uh, these these board members get paid a... There's a whole career for people to sit on boards and do really nothing of any consequence. Good boards don't make a company better. Bad boards will break a company. So what are you paying them for? But it's kind of the thing, right? Anyway... Um, so what a poison pill basically says is that when somebody begins to acquire or do an aggressive hostile takeover company, what the company can do is start issuing shares at a discount to other people, which, you know, basically kind of goes to the insiders of the company more than anything else. But that's an interesting thing about Twitter, which is that the insiders of the company, the CEO, the board members, et cetera, the people that should be supportive of Twitter own virtually no shares. The CEO of Twitter has a 0.26% stake in the company. Virtually no ownership whatsoever. It's not very much a convincing indictment that you believe in the company that you're running. There was a recently Brian Sozi, who writes for Yahoo Finance, went and visited Twitter and he says he, he went into Twitter to, to kind of view it and get a feel for it. And he says the company's dead. There's no excitement. There's no spark. There's no, you know, programmers hustling and bustling around. It's, it's just, it's, it's almost like a cemetery when you go into the building. Which, if you don't have the spirit, right, it just, that's not a great company to be working for. But, so what this poison pill does is it allows dilution of shareholders. And, and what this does is that as Elon Musk tries to buy more and more of the company, they keep issuing more and more shares so he can't ever quite get to that majority ownership because they just keep issuing shares until he finally gives up trying to buy shares. Because he's only and, – and at part of the poison pill is that he can only buy 15% of the company. The problem is, is that the dilution process opens up – it's not shareholder friendly. It's not good for shareholders. So it opens up the company to a deluge of lawsuits by shareholders. But over the weekend, Apollo management came out, said they'll back Musk in his bid. And if Musk can scrape together a couple of other people, Apollo, um, Thiel, maybe Silver Lake Partners, who uh, backed his 
was part of his discussions previously to take uh, Tesla private. If he can get three or four of their individuals to go in with him, they each buy 15%, they own 60% of the company, done deal, right? So he can put together a consortium to, to, to bypass the poison pill and, and get the company taken over. But here's the interesting aspect about all this. And there's one kind of fly in the ointment that probably will have to change. I was explaining this to my wife over the weekend. Elon Musk is the richest man in the world, right? He would not be the richest man in the world had Tesla been private. Where his value, where his net worth comes from is from the shares that he owns of Tesla times the market price. That's his wealth. If you take a look at just the raw operating cash flow of the company, he'd be worth maybe a couple hundred million. I mean, he'd be healthy, he'd be wealthy, no doubt about it. But would he be the world's richest man had the company been private this whole time? And the answer is no. Because, again, the wealth is generated by the share increase, these astronomical valuations of his company that he's being paid for. I mean, his company's valued at over a trillion dollars. The company does not generate nearly the money to be worth a trillion dollars, right? It's just the value that the financial markets have assigned to them. And so it's important to understand that value. Now, the other, so how does that apply to Twitter? Well, his, his thing is, is, hey, I'm going to spend $40 billion to take Twitter private. And that, that sounds great, right? We're going to make Twitter a private company. But I have a suspicion that, you know, once he brings in a couple of other investing partners, the idea of taking it private is going to go away pretty quickly because they'll never get their money back. The shares of Twitter right now barely trade above where they were when they IPO'd originally. The company has income of negative $221 million. And mind you, this is after the company went public in 2014. They're still losing money a decade later. They lose $221 million a year. So if the company loses... $221 million a year just paying all their costs, operations, expenses, etc. And I spend $50 billion buying the company. How am I ever going to get my money back if they're private? If I took 100% of their sales and paid no expenses, it'd take me 10 years to get my money back. So I have a sneaking suspicion he may wind up getting this done, but I doubt the company goes private. But even being a public company, he can do a whole lot better job with it than the current people have done running it and create a better platform for everybody and probably create some pretty decent net worth in the process. Anyway, wraps up the show for the day. Be sure you by the website. Our latest blog post is out. Markets are flat at the open this morning. Three minutes of markets and money are coming up. Have a great day. We'll see you back here tomorrow for the Wednesday edition of The Real Investment Show. See you then.
to his bad world.